Again, welcome to Bayou City. We're glad you're here. Why don't you tell the person on your right and left, I'm glad you're here. And tell them, hey, I heard this wasn't a long sermon. So we're in this series called Together, and we've been looking at the things that we do when we gather together. And the first week we looked at Hebrews and the assembling and how we're not to neglect the assembling and that you and I, we have a responsibility and we affect the outcome of whether it's a good Sunday or a bad Sunday. You and I play a responsibility in that. We are to encourage one another, stir one another up towards love, stir one another up towards good works, and we should do this all the more as the day draws near, meaning Jesus' return. As it gets closer and closer, you and I are to be engaged all the more in the church. Last week, we looked at opening the Word of God when we come together, and it was an amazing time. I love last week that uh, two, I'm using quotes here, regular guys from our church in this campus and at our other campus were the ones opening the, the word. A geologist here, Doug McGeehy, uh, did a phenomenal job. Got a couple of whoops there. It's fantastic. I think he is an Aggie, so he appreciated that. And, uh, and then uh, um, entrepreneur in the medical industry was the one who opened the word in, at our other campus. This is a beautiful thing. We're all in this together. All in this together, and today we're going to talk about why we give an offering. I, I've told you before, but I grew up in a very small country church in Missouri, and there are benefits to growing up in a small church, and one of the benefits is that they celebrate your birthday on Sunday mornings, and so every Sunday morning, a man would be behind the podium, and he would say, do we have any birthdays today? And you would raise your hand if it was your birthday, the Sunday closest to your birthday, and you would step out of your pew and walk down the middle aisle. And uh, when you got down there, we would sing happy birthday to you. And so it was a normal happy birthday song, but instead of, uh, you know, dear Curtis or dear your name, they would say, God bless you, you know, just to make it a little bit spiritual so that it fit nicely inside of church. But we sing happy birthday. And he would take a coffee can and kind of hold it out around the podium for you to put money in. There was a lid on it with a little slit, and your job was to put money in it. Now, I never understood why on your birthday you had to give an offering. It seems backward that you would get the offering that day on your birthday, but no, you had to put in an offering, and no one ever questioned this. It just was the thing that you did. So when it was my turn for my birthday, I would step out, and my mom would put a few coins or a dollar bill in my hand, and I'd walk down there and give money away. And the whole time that I was growing up at that church, nobody ever explained why this was, where this came from. All I know is that when you gave an offering, you got a a pencil. It was a happy birthday pencil. And I was in Missouri last week and I found a a happy birthday pencil right here. Somebody in my family gave an offering on their birthday and got this amazing blue pencil. So is it anybody's birthday today? I'd like you to give some money. I didn't bring any pencils, though. I don't know when the last time you stopped or I stopped to ask why we take up an offering on Sunday morning. I mean, we know pay bills and maybe all of those things, but why is that a part of the gathering together? You, you may think that it's just kind of an odd tradition that Somebody started a long, long time ago, and we still do without any thought to it. So we want to ask and answer the question, why do we give to the church? Now, you know, some pastors are nervous about 
talking about money at church. I'm not nervous today for a few reasons. Uh, Number one, I'm going to set you free. You don't have to give a dime. In fact, there's a story in Acts chapter 5 about a man named Ananias and Sapphira, and they sold a piece of land, and they... Uh, Hold on. Hold on. (laughs) They sold a piece of land, and they gave a tremendous amount of the profit to the church. I'm not talking about 10%. I'm not talking about 20%. They gave 70, 80, 90% of the money, but they kept back 10% for themselves, but they let everybody believe that they had given 100%. And so they actually died because of it. Right there in the middle of church, they died. So if you don't listen to one thing I say, don't lie about how much you give <laughs> to the church. Your scripture says you may die. So that's that. But right before they died, Acts chapter 5, Peter, the pillar of the church, the main leader of the church, he said to Ananias, that money was yours to do with what you wanted. Meaning, as long as it was in your wallet, it was your money. You didn't have to sell your land. And once you did sell your land, you could have kept all the money. Your problem was that you lied about it and you let everybody believe that you were more spiritual or more godly or more righteous or more committed than you really were. But the money was yours. And I think if Peter, Peter were here this morning and he was the one preaching this message, I think he would say the same thing to all of us today. If that money is in your wallet, your bank account, it is yours to do whatever you want to do with it. So I'm I'm not nervous today because you're totally free. I'm not nervous today either because we're looking for a specific kind of giver. And 2 Corinthians tells us that that is a cheerful giver. So if you're disgruntled that we're talking about money today, then we're not talking to you. That's not the kind of giver God is looking for. So you are off the hook. We're looking for cheerful givers, so I'm not nervous. And also, I'm not nervous because I really do want to maximize your wealth for your entire life. I'd love for you to tweet that out because we will have huge attendance next week. (laughs) Not that attendance is our problem here, but I am committed to maximizing your wealth for your entire life. Now, it is important for you to know that your life is a little bit bigger than most of us think. Because you have your life right now and you're well acquainted with that. But then there's then life after death. And there's even, as one teacher says, life after life after death. So you have your life right now and you are breathing in oxygen and bringing out carbon dioxide. You are well acquainted with that. But that eventually is going to stop. There won't be any more oxygen in and there won't be any more carbon dioxide out. This life is going to be over. And if you have believed in the name of Jesus, Jesus says that you go to be with him in paradise. That's what he called it. He called it paradise. Sometimes we call it heaven, but you're in paradise with Jesus. And the apostle Paul said that if you are absent from this body, then you are present with Jesus, with the Lord. So that's the life after death. But then there's even something after that because Jesus is going to return one day back here to earth. And those who are in paradise with him will return with him and the whole earth will be made new and we will live with him on earth under his lordship and kingship on into eternity. And the Bible tells us, Jesus specifically tells us that what you do in this life affects those other two phases. And what you do with your money now affects 
your wealth in phase two and in phase three. And I am committed to maximizing your wealth for the entirety of your life. And I do not want you to peak in phase one. I do not want you to be as rich as you will ever be while you are breathing in oxygen here and breathing out carbon dioxide because it's the smallest portion of your life. Why do we give to the church? God talks a lot about money. seems to be bad manners for us to talk about money, but God speaks about it a lot, and it is all the way through the Scripture, right from the beginning, Cain and Abel. What do they fight about? They fight about offering. It's not monetary, but it is financial, and it leads Cain to murder. Genesis chapter 14, we see Abraham, he gives uh, 10% of all that he has, and he was a very wealthy man. That was a very big number. He gives 10% to this mysterious figure, this king of Salem, which the book of Hebrews later calls back to. When God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt, he's out in the wilderness with them, leading them in the desert, and he wants to build essentially an earthly throne, a tabernacle, a tent, and he invites the people of Israel to bring what they have, bring their gold, bring their jewelry, bring their wood, bring anything that they have so that this tabernacle would be built. He invites them to make an offering out there in the wilderness. He makes a covenant with them, and a part of the covenant is the law, and in the law, was the law of the tithe, and God required of them, demanded that they would give 10% of everything that they have every year to go to the house of God, and they would deliver it to the place of worship. Some of the prophets remind people, remind God's people in the Old Testament about that tithe. In fact, Malachi, God speaking through Malachi, says, listen, you know, we're not supposed to put God to the test, but here's one area that you can test God, and it is the tithe. God saying through Malachi, if you will be faithful with the tithe, I'll be more than faithful with you. I, I, I will deal abundantly with you, according to the prophet Malachi. But then Jesus comes, and that old covenant of law is lifted up off of us, but what we're left with is love, and love is heavier than law. Love is weightier than law. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he says, you've heard it said, meaning in the old days, in the days of our ancestors under the old covenant, you heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. That's in the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. But I say to you, meaning in the new covenant, under my way, under my leadership in this new day, don't even look at a woman lustfully or you've already committed adultery in your heart. The law is weighty, but not as weighty as love. He also said in there, you've heard it said in the olden days under the old covenant, love your friends and hate your enemies. But I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So in this new covenant that we follow Jesus into, there's no law on us, but love is on us and love is more demanding than law. That's why Jesus said, to some people who wanted to follow him, you can follow me, but go and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor and then come follow me. More than one person he said that to. And we see the very first church, those very first organized followers of Jesus, obeying and following that heavy burden of love when it comes to giving. Turn to Acts chapter 4.
Acts chapter 4, we see the potential of generosity in the church. Verse 32, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Wherever there is a unified church, there is a generous church. They were one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. There was selflessness among this church when it came to generosity. They, they weren't saying me and mine and what I have. They were saying we and ours and what do you need. And look at how the gospel is connected to generosity. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And there was grace on them because of their generosity and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person, verse 34, among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds to the things of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as anyone had need. There was no one needy in this church because those who had a lot were generous. It wasn't that everybody had the same. It was that those who had more refused to let those who had Little continue to have little. They gave them everything that they needed. You know, one of the things that's most disturbing to me in this election, which there are a lot of things that are disturbing to me, and if you are not disturbed, I think that says something about your faith, honestly, if you just let me be a little prophetic here for a second. Among the many things that are disturbing to me is this idea that the classes of people are at war with one another. I mean, just listen to the way these candidates talk. The upper class is against the lower class, and the lower class is against the upper class, and the middle class is against the other two classes. This is the way they appeal to us. And, and I don't know everybody's story in here, but I look at us and where we live and and, and I would guess we are either right in the middle or somewhere a little bit to the left of the middle or a little bit uh, to the right of the middle when it comes to uh, financial means and where we're at. If you consider yourself middle class, I'm guessing most of us do. And, and I guess it's, I, I would guess for most of us, it's been a while since here in the United States we've bumped into somebody with real significant need who just didn't have anything. Last week I was at uh, Walgreens. I was picking up just a, a few things and I walked to the counter there in the front, and there was a young woman who was uh, paying for her calling card. You know, she had a, a prepaid cell phone, and so she just needed one of those rechargeable, reloadable cards, and that's what she was buying. That was the only thing that she was buying, and she had all her money out on the table, and so there were a couple of dollar bills and then just a lot of change, and not the kind of change which is I've been saving quarters, you know, for a couple of months now, and I'm going to be that annoying person who's going to pay, you know, in all quarters. Not that. There were nickels and pennies and dimes, and, and this all laid out there on the counter, and the man behind the counter said, that's not enough. And so she reaches back into her wallet. And I'm not trying to really eavesdrop in on this thing because I can tell something delicate is happening here. But I'm standing right there. And, and she reaches back into her wallet because it's not enough. And she pulls out a nickel and two pennies. 
that's, it just puts it on the table and looks back at him and he's like kind of shaking his head. It's not enough. So she goes back to her wallet and she pulls out a credit card and she slides the credit card and it beeps at her. And we all know that beep. We all know that declined beep. Even if you have a lot of money, you know, you shopped at Target and Target, it was hacked and they turned your credit card off and they didn't tell you and you went to some other place and you swiped the card and uh, uh, and, uh, you're like, I promise I got money in there. I don't know what's going to happen. It's the credit card swap. We all know that humiliating feeling of being declined even if we have the money. And it beeped at her. So she goes back to her wallet and pulls out a debit card this time and slides it and types in her pin number and it beeps back at her. And so she gets super apologetic and she starts, you know, gathering up her dimes. And I say, how much do you need? 53 cents. And so, of course, I gave her the money that she needed. 53 cents. She didn't have 53 cents in her bank account. But if I just listen to the sound bite that I get and Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, she's just a number of a person in an opposite class that's different than me. But in the church, there is no different than me. There is one family, and those who have been blessed a lot bless those who don't have a lot. We look out for one another. We care for one another. Wouldn't it be the most powerful thing that you could say about Bayou City Fellowship is there is not one needy person there. Not because we all have the same, but those who have much refuse to let there be any who have none. The potential of generosity in the church is what we're seeing here. And it comes only through the sacrifice of those who have. And and we give an example. We get an example of this in verse 36. And Joseph, a Levite and a Cypriot by birth, whom the apostles named Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now remember, just in the very next chapter is a story about Ananias and Sapphira. And so Peter tells him, listen, when it was yours, it was yours to do whatever you wanted with it. And there wasn't a big shift between chapter 4 and chapter 5. So it's still the attitude. If it's yours, it's yours. You don't have to do this. It's not some government mandated, leadership mandated thing that we all share. It was just, they were cheerful to do it. And Barnabas is one. He went and sold some property that he didn't need. and, and Or maybe he did need it, but he was happy to to give the proceeds to the church. God's work is funded always through someone's sacrifice. There is, there, there is no uh, unfound money left on planet Earth. I think every buried pirate treasure has been discovered now, if it's going to be discovered. Right? So if God puts a dream of ministry in your heart, a calling... This is what I want you to do. This is who I want you to serve. This is the thing I want you to start. The only way that will be funded is if somebody else sacrifices so that work can be done. All the money out there is found money. There's no unfound money out there. There's no rainbow at the end with the buried pot of gold. All of God's work is funded through the sacrifice of someone else. And we see that incredible potential in this church. And it wasn't just 
this church, it was all the churches. In the background of many of the New Testament letters that Paul writes is this offering that he's collecting because there was a, a season where the church in Judea there around Jerusalem was going through a great famine and Paul was writing to all his churches saying, listen, we're taking up a collection, we're taking up an offering so that our brothers and sisters in this other part of the world uh, they are suffering. We don't want them to suffer. We want them to have the money that they need so they can buy the food that they need. And so he says to them, set aside money on the first day of every week, which was Sunday, meaning every Sunday, collect together, give together so that we can support those who are in need. You know, I don't know if you know this, hopefully most of you do, but 20% off the top at Bayou City Fellowship gets into the hands of somebody besides us. It's not just for us and our gatherings and our thing. It gets into the hands of people who need it here within our church, uh, in the city of Houston, and around the world. 20% right off the top, because we see that this is the pattern in the Scripture, that we help those who are in need. And when we do, there's great potential. And, And what I found is that most people are not offended by this teaching in the Scripture. You can't argue that God doesn't talk about money. You can't argue that the church is not funded by the sacrifice of many. The, the problem is when it gets personal. And it's not just a tithe, it's my tithe. When it's not just a sacrifice, it's my turn to sacrifice. Then it gets a little bit harder. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. And I, I want to explain why, at least in my own life, I think it's, it's hard. Matthew chapter 6, these are the words of Jesus. And he says in verse 21, For where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. So he's saying, whatever you treasure, that's where your heart will be. That's what you will love. You will love whatever it is that you consider your treasure. And that's why many of us find giving difficult and generosity difficult because we treasure our money. So giving our money is like ripping us apart, tearing us apart from our treasure. It's the thing that we value the most. And so giving becomes a huge obstacle for us because that's where our heart is. That's what we love. Even if we wouldn't describe it like that, there's this tearing effect. And even when you and I are thinking right now about what it would look like for us to be generous, it feels like a ripping. It's because that's what we treasure. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. But what the scripture teaches is there's a long list of things to treasure and money is not one of them. And I want to show you a few of those this morning. This is what we should actually be treasuring. And all of us need a realignment every once in a while. All of us need a reminder, even me. A couple of days ago, I I came in and I told Amanda, hey, uh, I think that we need fill in the blank. And I said something very, very random uh, that I thought we needed, and she was preloaded with the response, like she had almost been thinking about it ahead of time, and she said, no, actually what we should do with our money is this, 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 and this. And men, don't you hate it when your wife is only right, and there's no like nuance for you to also be right at the same time? <laughs> Just 100%, she was right, and 100%, I was wrong. And she said all of her things, and I was like, yes, ma'am. <laughs> no, I didn't say that, but she was right. She was right, and I just needed a reminder. No, we don't need that thing. We don't even need that thing. We just don't need that thing. Right? We needed to do these other things. They were the better things. And, and, and this today may be a reminder for you. Right? Our heart is in the right place. We want to do what's right. We want God to be glorified with our lives. But we just need a reminder that maybe our money is not our treasure. 
because some of these things are. Let's stay in Matthew chapter 6 right there. Jesus mentions one of them. Don't collect for yourselves, verse 19, treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. We shouldn't treasure our money. We should treasure our future, our future in heaven. That's what we should be treasuring. You know, most of us, when we think about life after death, we think of it like a whiteboard. And in this life, we have filled up that whiteboard. And some of it's good and some of it's bad. We've just been writing, writing, writing all the days of our life. And when we die, it's like that all gets erased and we get to start over. But actually, if you read the teachings of Jesus, whatever you are writing on that board in this life carries over into that life. That heaven will be affected by what you do here and specifically and most clearly in Jesus' teaching, what you do with your money here matters in heaven. And if we treasured heaven more than we treasured our money, then we would do the right thing here so we get the benefit there. But most of us have it backward. We treasure our possessions and our things more than we treasure heaven. Why? Because we can put our hands around them. We can touch them, feel them, we can experience them, we can give, we can receive, we can pay, we can get. And heaven is a little bit more mysterious than that. Our daughter Annabeth, she's seven. Amanda and I were talking about some of these things as we were driving back from Missouri this past week. And, and she just asked, you know, what, what is heaven going to be like? And we were specifically talking about after Jesus returns. So what's a new heaven and a new earth going to look like? And, and we really just struggled to say exactly what it was. And, you know, I said, well, take that tree over there. Like that tree is really beautiful. And it's good. And it's doing its job. It's going to be the best possible version when Jesus recreates everything. And there's mountains and mountains are beautiful and they're breathtaking. But in the new earth, it's going to be the best possible version of that. And Amanda chimes in and says, you know, our God is so creative. If this life that we're living is, is so brief and eternity is so long, maybe he's saving the best stuff for last. Maybe there are wild creations that he knows and is just saving. See, I think it's like the Apostle Paul. Our sign of maturity that we're growing in our faith is when we start to wrestle like he wrestled. Remember in Philippians chapter 1, he says this crazy phrase, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And then he goes on this weird inner dialogue that he lets us in on when he says, you know, there are pros to me staying alive, and there are pros to me dying, which for him was not a philosophical debate because he was in prison as he was writing those words without knowing the outcome of that prison sentence, among which death was a real possibility. And so he said, you know, I'm sitting in prison. I might be on death row. I might get out. I don't really know. But there are some real advantages to staying alive. And primarily, you know, you and I would be like, yeah, freedom. That would be awesome. And I get to do whatever I want. And I'm not in prison. That would be like the number one benefit. And he says, ministry. I could do more ministry if I don't die here in prison. But then he's like, but if I do die in prison, then I get to go and be with the Lord. And a sign of spiritual maturity in your growing in your faith is that that tension begins to 
get more tense in you. When we lack spiritual maturity, we're like, that's insanity. That's insanity. Of course, I want to keep on living and doing the things that I'm doing. But when you grow in maturity, you're like, yeah, I want to keep doing the things that I'm doing. And I love my family and I love my life and all those things. But man, I bet it's going to be pretty cool to be with the Lord. See, I think that's why the Apostle Paul is best described as his hands were on the earth, but his heart was in heaven. And that's the way we should be. Our hands should be on the earth, meaning we should be useful here. We should work hard here in Jesus' name. We should be helpful here. There should be people whose lives are changed because of the good works that you and I do. Our hands should be on earth, but our heart should be on heaven. Our heart should long to be with the Lord. That's what we should treasure, not our money. Matthew chapter 13, a few pages to the right. Jesus mentions another treasure Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field and a man found, that a man found and reburied and then goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. So the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. Instead of treasuring money, we should treasure and value the kingdom of heaven. We are citizens of God's kingdom now, but we are on earth. And so it feels complicated, but it's not that complicated because we've been experiencing the same thing as we watch the Olympics, right? You've been leaning in with Team America and it's been awesome and you've you've got the whole America vibe going on at your house and you're tuning in, watching people in leotards dance and watching people in leotards swim and all lots of leotards in the in the Olympics, right? And we understand what that there are Americans on Team America, the U.S. national team, and they are Americans, and, but they're not here in America. They're in Brazil. They're in another country. They're in a foreign place, but they talk like Americans, and they walk like Americans, and they compete like Americans, and that's why we identify with them. It's the same thing. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's in the kingdom of God, but yet we're here in this foreign place, but instead of walking like the foreign place and acting like the foreign place and talking like the foreign place and thinking like the foreign place, we should think like where our citizenship is and we should walk like we're in the kingdom of God and we talk like we're in the kingdom of God and we should move like we're in the kingdom of God. And what's the kingdom of God like? Well, it's a kingdom of power and potential and possibility. It's a kingdom of grace and mercy and love and redemption. It's a, it's a kingdom of purpose and meaning and we should treasure it. We should treasure it more than we treasure our money because Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. Colossians chapter 2, we should treasure wisdom and knowledge. It says in verse 3, in him all the treasures, that's in Christ, in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. We should treasure wisdom and knowledge, which would put us at odds I think with our culture, because what our culture is trying to accumulate is experiences. That's why our battle cries these days are YOLO and FOMO. YOLO, you only live once. It's a banner statement. Anthem, you only get one shot at life, give it all you've got, 
do as much as you can, have experiences, and then there's FOMO, the fear of missing out. So that's why your social media experience is very up and down. When you're the one posting the good times, your endorphins are up. And then when somebody else is posting the good times that you are not a part of, your endorphins are down, and then they're up again, and then they're down again, right? Because we want to accumulate experiences, and when we're more than once having the experience, it's a good thing, and when somebody else is having the experience without us, it's a bad thing. And that's what everybody's trying to accumulate. But we should treasure wisdom and knowledge. That's what we should be trying to accumulate. It's what we should treasure. If you're single, I can't imagine trying to be single and dating at this moment in time without wisdom and knowledge. If you are a parent, You need a tremendous amount of wisdom and knowledge. Because why? Because what Cyprus, Texas wants to turn you into is a carbon copy parent. Meaning someone else laid the groundwork a long time ago and you just rip off a copy and hand it to your kids. Everybody plays this. Here you go. Everybody does this. Here you go. Everybody buys this. Here you go. Everybody looks like this. Here you go. And we've been parenting our children based on the way somebody else parented their children generations ago or decades ago. So I've got a fifth grader now. Well, the fifth grade parents last year did this, and the fifth grade parents before that did this, and it's just the same. But God has given you a unique child, wired up in a specific way, and you need to parent him or her, very creatively, and you need to do that with wisdom. Not just taking a page out of someone else's playbook. How are we going to manage to be faithful to Jesus in this moment in time without a tremendous amount of wisdom and knowledge? We have to treasure it. And we have to treasure it more than we treasure money. Then finally, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, a few pages to the left from Colossians. The Apostle Paul writes these words in verse 7. Now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. You are the clay jar. Now, most of us would have liked to have been a gold jar or silver jar, we'd settle for a bronze jar, but lo, we are clay jars, and clay jars were common. If you were rich, you had a clay jar. If you were middle class, you had a clay jar. Even if you were poor, you could afford a clay jar. But there's good news. There's a treasure in you. And we go back to the verse before that to discover what that treasure is. For God, verse 6, who said, Light shall shine out of the darkness, He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the treasure that's in you. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the treasure that's in us. Not money. This. Light. Which you compare to what Paul later on says to Timothy when he says that money is the root of all kinds of evil. There are people who are being taken advantage of, who are being stolen, raped, pillaged, beaten right now in this world because somewhere way far up the chain, somebody who already had a lot of money wanted more money. The love of money 
is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money yields a great, great darkness. We see it all the time. You see it daily. But the light of the knowledge of God's glory. See, in the Old Testament, under that Old Covenant, they couldn't know God's glory personally. You remember the story of Moses. Moses would go up on the mountain, and he got to be in God's glory. And then he would come down off the mountain, and his face would be shining. And what did God's people do? They want to gather around and, and say, oh, this is amazing. We kind of get kind of the aftermath of, of what Moses got. No, they said, this kind of freaks us out a little bit. So here's the game plan. You go up on the mountain, you take your veil off, and you can just be in the presence of God. But when you come back down on the mountain, you're talking to us regular people, we want you to put your veil down because your face glowing is, with God's glory is, is freaking us out a little bit. There was a barrier between the glory of God and the people of God. But in the new covenant, there is no barrier. We're invited into the glory of God. And more than that, it is in us. And it is most clearly seen in the what? The knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We can know God's glory, His greatness, His esteem, His holiness. We are most well acquainted with that when we look into the face of Jesus Christ. This is what we should be treasuring. Jesus and money should not be competitors in your heart. Jesus and your possessions, they should not be equals and rivals. He is ultimate treasure, a better treasure than our money. Our money is not treasure. So if our money is not treasure, what is it? It is a resource to be invested. It's a resource to be invested. And where's the best place to invest a resource like that? the same place that Jesus invested. You're looking for a safe investment. You're looking for an investment that will never fail. Invest in what Jesus has committed to protect. And what he has committed to protect is his church. He loves the church. Ephesians chapter 5 says he gave himself up for the church because he loves the church. If you're looking for a safe investment, invest in the thing that Jesus loves. So to answer the question, why do we give at church? Because Jesus gave to the church. Why do we invest in the church? Because the church is not perfect. Well, yeah, well, one time the church that I went to, they spent blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that happens. But Jesus still loves the church. He believes in the potential of the church. And his plan on planet Earth is through the church. So a few action steps I'd love to challenge you with on our way out. First, I'd, I'd con- ask you to consider taking that money and investing it by com- becoming a regular giver to the church. Become a regular giver. Some people, they see the offering thing go by, and they open up their wallet, and kind of whatever they have in it, they throw in it. And then next week, maybe they didn't have anything in their wallet, and so they didn't put anything in, and next month, and just kind of random. Like, you feel like it, you do it. If you feel good, if it was a good sermon... I give money. If it was a long sermon, you get nothing. You get bupkis. That's what you get. Right? I'd, con- I'd ask you to consider becoming a regular giver. If you are a regular giver and you give consistently, I'd ask you to become a percentage giver. So well, however much money you make, decide ahead of time. I'm going to give 5%. I'm going to give 7%. I'm going to give 6%. I'm going to give 3% to the church. Become a percentage giver. If you are a percentage giver already, I'd ask you to consider becoming a tither. 
we're not bound by that Old Testament law, but it's a great place to start since we see the pattern of the New Testament becoming more generous and not less generous. So maybe 10% would be your goal. Whatever you're going to make in 2016, 10% of that would go straight to the church. And maybe some of you are already tithers and you give that 10%. I'd ask you to consider becoming somebody like Barnabas and become a benefactor. When you look around and you have a lot of excess and God has blessed you with X, Y, and Z and you got a bonus and you got more than you were expecting, you come to the church and say, hey, I have this much money. What would you do with it? You don't even have to commit it. You don't even have to give it. But just say, hey, God's blessed me. I was able to sell my house. I sold it a lot for a lot more than I made it and I just don't feel at this time that I need to go and get a bigger one. So I got this excess. What would you do with it? And maybe we could fund a staff position, a pastoral staff position with that in 2017. Maybe there's this ministry that God is birthing in somebody else in our church, but the funds are not there, and you are the funds. Become a benefactor. And why would we do all that? Because Jesus loves the church. And that's the place we should invest. Let's pray. I'd love for us to just pray together right now, just where you are, and quietness of your soul with as much faith as you, you could muster, that Bayou City Fellowship would always have the money that we need. We don't need a big storehouse, but that we would have the money that we need to do the ministry that God has called us to do. Just pray that, that money would not be our primary obstacle to ministry here. Would you pray that as we give to the church, all of us together, that, that God would just give, let great grace be upon all of us, just like he did in that church in Acts. That we would love to give and we would have a culture of joy and generosity here. And finally, would you just ask that God would give us the wisdom and knowledge that we would not waste even one of his pennies. God, we just say together, whether we're talking about money or we're talking about serving one another or talking about helping the poor. We want to be the church that you want us to be, so fashion us into that. We want you to be glorified when you see us gathering here on Sunday morning. We want you to be happy in your heart because of this community of people, God. So strengthen our strengths and strengthen our weaknesses. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Why don't you stand to